And it's a great privilege to be able to talk with uh, so many young people, many of whom are going to be our greatest citizens in not too many years. I've uh, spoken before about the details of my profession and the kinds of things that our people are trying to accomplish. And I thought this time I'd talk about some more personal things. But uh, to start out by explaining again what it is we do and how we do it. Uh, in uh, theoretical elementary particle physics, we have a modest objective, which is to find out the fundamental laws that govern all matter in the universe. The fundamental laws of the elementary particles, out of which everything is made, including us, have the same properties. Each one has the same properties everywhere in the universe, as far as we can tell. If we take the laws of those particles and of the forces among them, uh, the fundamental microscopic laws of physical science, and we adjoin to those the initial conditions at the beginning of the expansion of the universe, give us the fundamental macroscopic laws of the universe, we put those two together, then we have all the fundamental principles that govern natural science. And in fact, these two are coming together very much. Uh, early cosmology and elementary particle theory are joining. And many of the best ideas in uh, early cosmology today are coming from elementary particle physics. <clears throat> now, how do we do this? We work with pencil, paper, and wastebasket. And the most important of those is the last. We scribble equations that attempt to describe these fundamental laws. And in most cases, the equations end up in the wastebasket because uh, the uh, principles that are expressed by the equations are not self-consistent. Or if they are self-consistent because they are inconsistent with some very experimentally very well-established and coherent body of information. We have to throw them out. Every once in a while, some idea survives this process and is not discarded. <coughs> but the ultimate purpose is not to impress the other theorists with our mathematical erudition or ingenuity, although some of us uh, seem to think that at times. The object is to make substantive contributions to our knowledge of the laws of nature. In fact, the laws of nature at the most fundamental level. Uh, when I was an undergraduate at Yale, I got very good grades in my courses, many of which were in the humanities and other subjects, but a great many of which were in mathematics and physics. I mastered in a superficial way the material that was presented in class, in the textbooks, and succeeded in regurgitating it on examinations uh, and in homework to the satisfaction of the professors. But I didn't understand what the theoretical scientific research enterprise was about. When I entered graduate school at MIT, I started, like the other graduate students, to attend the Harvard-MIT theoretical seminar at which research results were presented by graduate students, postdoctoral fellows, professors at the two institutions. I didn't understand what was going on. The, uh, I was there, I was participating in a sense, but I didn't understand what the point was. 
Like the famous uh, piano player in the bordello who came and played the piano every night but didn't know what the operation was about. Uh, I thought it was something like a class and that the people who spoke were somehow graded. That was the, what I was familiar with. Classes, grades, memorizing material, spitting it out on examinations. Uh, early in the year, one of the first talks was by a graduate student at Harvard who was just completing his dissertation and presented a calculation in which he uh, attempted to uh, calculate the properties of the lowest state of a certain atomic nucleus. It's called boron-10, has five protons and five neutrons. Everybody knew that the spin of this ground state was one unit, and indeed, that was the conclusion he found. He calculated the properties of the state and found after long, very approximate calculations that the spin was one unit. He sat down, people applauded politely, and I waited to see what those famous theorists in the front row, the professors at Harvard and MIT, would have to say about the result. Would they praise him? Would they give him a good grade for his presentation? In fact, they didn't say anything. Near me, though, two or three seats away, in fact, he'd been sitting next to me, but I edged away from him, was a grubby little person with a two or three days growth of beard who had emerged from the basement of MIT. He looked as if he didn't see the light very often. And uh, this, uh, this individual got up and said something. He couldn't talk very well. He had some sort of low-class urban accent. And uh, he, he was the only one who spoke. He said, uh, you know, they measured the spin, and it ain't one. It's three. <laughs> Suddenly, in a blinding flash, I understood what the point was. Impressing our colleagues had nothing to do with it at all. He was the one we had to impress, and not he, really, either, but nature. He was speaking for nature because he was quoting some other grubby experimentalist who had measured the spin. <clears throat> the whole point of our enterprise was not to impress the learned professors in the front row, but to agree with nature. <clears throat> As you all know, many of you know, we in uh, theoretical physics are now enormously excited, most of us, about something called Superstring theory, uh, developed uh, in great part, actually, by my associates uh, at Caltech. It's the first good candidate that anyone has ever seen for a possible unified field theory to describe all the elementary particles and all of the forces of nature in one master equation with beautiful properties. It's a very beautiful theory, has many, uh, many significant uh, features that we had always hoped to see in a theory, and we have high hopes that it may work. But it's very important to realize that the ultimate test is not whether it pleases us, whether it has a beautiful form, whether it shows how smart the people are who invented it. The point of theoretical science is to agree with nature, and what's important for that theory is whether in the long run it makes predictions that agree with observation, and we all hope it does. The essential uh, part of the work, to look at it a little more subtly, 
is to have ideas, creative ideas. And this turns out, as you can tell from all the other talks, from all the presentations here and at similar gatherings elsewhere, is not peculiar to science, in art, in business, in, uh, <coughs> in uh, history, archaeology, in uh, any sort of significant human endeavor. Uh, it's very important to solve problems, to break with tradition in order to solve problems, to have a new idea. And the mechanism by which that happens is familiar. It's been familiar to psychologists for decades. Scientists have uh, described it for more than 100 years. We had a seminar at Aspen about 20 years ago in which two visual artists, a poet, a physicist, and a biologist all spoke about their experiences in having new ideas that made progress. The speeches were all very similar, almost identical. The first step is you encounter some contradiction between what you need to do and the traditional machinery that's available for doing such a thing. The second step is you fill yourself with that problem. You work on it very hard, passionately, spending a lot of time on it and a lot of effort, trying to make it work, and it doesn't. The third step is you don't do anything. You take a walk in the woods, you cook, you shave, you swim, you ride a horse, uh, you fall asleep and have a dream, any of those things. And a long time later, or maybe a short time later, depending on the circumstances, the shrinks would say that the material is being cooked in your pre-conscious mind. But anyway, after a while, there's a breakthrough, or an apparent breakthrough. You have discovered some important, usually negative, idea. Negative meaning you have found that something that everybody has accepted as necessary isn't necessary. You can get rid of it. And once that threshold is passed, as often as not, you can solve the problem. The final step, of course, to check that it really works. Sometimes it doesn't, but assume it does, then you're finished. You have actually had the necessary idea. These days, a number of people, over the last four decades, in fact, a number of people have suggested that maybe they have found ways of getting around that traditional creative process, short-circuiting it, doing something more quickly, uh, brainstorming, for example. People sit around a table trying to solve a problem together, and the rules forbid attacking someone else's idea, no matter how stupid. You can only build on somebody's stupid idea. You must not contradict it. It works like this. Somebody says, in thinking about how to control pollution uh, in factories that pour their effluents into a river, somebody says, the thing we need is for a factory to be downstream from itself. <laughs> you don't say, that's a dumb idea. You say, well, maybe you could do that. Suppose the factory were required to have its outlet upstream from its intake. And so a stupid idea, a meaningless idea, might turn into one of possible utility. Another suggestion, another way of breaking out of a basin of attraction for ideas into some other basin of attraction for ideas. Another way is to use a random input. Uh, 
Use the last word in today's newspaper to solve your problem. Something of that kind. Great. And of all those ideas, does any of them really work? Should they be taught in schools? I think it's of very great importance that somebody work, that groups of people work on imaginative methods of testing to see whether these procedures, any of them or all of them, are really useful in circumventing the traditional way of having new ideas. And if they are proved to be valuable, they should certainly be taught in schools. Thank you.